Good morning, church. Luke 3, 15 to 20 says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church family. This week, as I was praying for our church, one of the prayers that God kept putting on my heart is to make us a people who are hungry for God's word. And I kept thinking about the fact that as we're studying Luke's gospel, and in chapter 3, we have joined John the Baptist out in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place where God is teaching us To live upon his word alone. You think think about Jesus when he was in the wilderness. We'll read about it in a few weeks. But he had been fasting for an extended period of time. And the devil came and tempted him. Telling him, tell these stones to turn into bread. And some of you remember what he says. Jesus replied, man does not live by bread alone. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need... God's word to live more than we need food. And I thought about this prayer again this morning because when I walked into this hallway, those enchiladas smelled so good or whatever that was. And uh, even now, the memory of it makes me feel like I need them a lot. Amen. So for the rest of this sermon, every time I'm preaching and you catch that whiff and start looking forward to that lunch, you need to think I need God's word more than I need tacos. Okay, but. Seriously, if you're going through a wilderness time in your life, the work, the work of this season is to learn to live on God's word alone. So I'm going to invite you to bow your head with me one time. We've already prayed several times, but would you join me in asking that the Holy Spirit will make us a people who live on God's holy word, recognizing we need it more than we need food. Father, we love you. We're thankful that you sent Jesus. We're thankful for the body and blood of Christ given for us that we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. And now as we turn our attention to your holy word, we're thankful that you are a God who loves us enough to speak to us. And give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to trust. Give us minds to understand. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out in a fresh way in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Now, I want to direct your attention to one word in the first verse of our text, and it's this word expectation. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, and it goes on and tells John's answer. But I want you right now just to think about what it means when it says the people were in expectation. It means they were excited. It means the people are hopeful. It means the people are eager. They are energized. The people are filled with anticipation. And then we have to ask the question, why? Why are the people so excited and hopeful and expectant? And then we remember what we read last week, if you were here. You, if you've got your Bible open, you can glance back up at verse 2. Verse 2 says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. You see, the people have been flocking out to hear John preach, and they are used to hearing teachers teach the scripture, but there is something different about John. He speaks God's word with a power and an authority which is fresh. This is not to say that John is the only prophet around. In Luke's gospel, we've already met the prophetess Anna, and we've heard prophetic words from Elizabeth and from Zechariah and from Mary, but there's something different about John. When people go out to the wilderness and hear John, it's like the ancient days that they've only read about. It's like the prophet Elijah has come among them again. And this experience of hearing God's word in a fresh and powerful way has awakened their expectations because there were various ancient prophecies that when God was coming to bring salvation to his people, one of the marks of God's coming would be a renewal of prophecy. So when they hear John, they're thinking John is a good prophet, but this means that God is doing something new. This means that God is about to save his people. The Messiah, the Christ, is about to appear. And some of them are beginning to wonder, is John the Messiah? Is he the Christ? So the second key word you need to notice is the last word of verse 15. You might circle that word, Christ. Everybody say Christ. Now the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay, The word Christ is a title it means the anointed one. And God's people for centuries had been praying, God, save us from our troubles. God, forgive our sins. God, rescue us from our oppressors. And God had promised them, I will send an anointed one. I will send the Christ and he will rescue you. So they're asking John, are you the Christ, the Savior we've been waiting for? And John's answer is clear in verses 16 and 7. He's saying, no, I'm not the Christ I am a prophet who has come to get you ready for the Christ. And we're about to, in a minute, come back to verses 16 and 17 and look at them in some detail. But for now, I want you to glance at the last three verses that are in your bulletin. Verses 18 through 20 describe John doing what prophets do. Let's just read them one more time. It's short. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked, that he locked John up in prison. Now, those few sentences show us John fulfilling the prophetic vocation that almost all of God's prophets fulfill. 
First of all, it says he proclaims the good news. A prophet has come to tell people that God is the Savior and God is about to work, or he just has worked, to save his people in a way that fills them with hope and joy. But it says also he exhorted the people. He's not just proclaiming good news. He's calling on the people to respond to God's good news with a life of repentance, turning from evil to trust in the Lord. The text also tells us that John is doing what prophets do by courageously speaking God's truth to the world's power. So often when we read through the Old Testament, the prophets of God are confronting kings, kings of Judah, kings of Israel, the kings of surrounding nations, or they're confronting religious leaders, and they're speaking God's truth to the world's power in a way that invites the world to turn from evil and experience the salvation of God. But of course, Herod the Tetrarch does not like John rebuking him for his sexual sin. And the text suggests that John rebuked Herod for a lot of other things besides that. And so finally, we see John doing what prophets do by suffering. As you read through the scriptures, prophets of God almost always seal their witness to the truth through suffering. And John is arrested. He's put in prison. Now, I just want to pause for a little side note. This is not the main point of the sermon, but it's a side note. The church of Jesus Christ has a prophetic vocation. Here's how we could say this. Jesus, as the Christ, the anointed one, fulfills all the anointed offices of the people of Israel. He is the great king above all kings. Jesus is the great priest who came to reveal God to us and to bring us to God. Through his death and resurrection. And Jesus is the great prophet who comes declaring the word of God. And the church of Jesus Christ, because we are the people of the Messiah, share in all of those offices. Right now, I'm not even necessarily talking about a spiritual gift of prophecy. I'm saying the community of faith, all of us, is called to share in the kingly office of Jesus by doing good works that bring God's healing power into the world. We're called to share in the priestly office of Jesus by praying for people and proclaiming the gospel and teaching God's word. And we're called to participate in the prophetic office of Jesus Christ, which means, church, as the prophetic people of God, we as a community are called to do the same stuff that John and all the prophets do. Okay, we're called to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. We're called to exhort people to respond to that good news through repentance and faith. We're called to speak God's truth to the world's power. That doesn't mean we're called to be grumpy and self-righteous on Twitter. What that means is we're called to love people enough that we speak the truth because the truth sets people free. And if we're going to be witnesses to the truth, then we need to be ready to suffer for the truth. So John shows us the prophetic office. Now, John is a powerful witness for us. But the text makes it clear that John doesn't want us to look at John. John wants us to look at Jesus. So everybody say, it's all about Jesus. And in verses 16 and 17, John is saying, don't put your hope on me. Don't put your expectations on me. Put your hope in Jesus. Jesus is mightier than I am. I don't even deserve to be a slave of Jesus who undoes his sandals for him. Jesus comes baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus comes with a winnowing fork. John is pointing us to Jesus. 
And for the remainder of our time today, I really want us to dig into verses 17 and 16 and hear the really important things that John is telling us about Jesus Christ. Let's start with verse 17, and then we're going to back into verse 16. Look, look with me again at verse 17. It says this about the mightier one who's coming after John, namely Jesus Christ. It says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, this image of the threshing floor and the wheat and the chaff was very familiar to John's first hearers, but it may not be familiar to us. So here's what it's talking about. When it was time for wheat harvest, some people would go out into the fields and they'd take their sickle and they'd cut down the big stalks of wheat. And then other people would come and take it to the threshing floor, which would be a big, hard, smooth surface, surface perhaps made of stone. And they would basically hit it a lot. And when they hit it, they're separating the kernels of wheat that you want to eat from all the other stuff on the plant, the leafy stuff. And after they've done all that and separate it, then somebody comes to do what John is talking about here. They, they come with a winnowing fork. And the process of winnowing is a process of separation. They would take this big thing like a pitchfork and they would just dig it down into the wheat and then throw it up into the air. And the heavy kernels of wheat fall onto the ground. But the light, leafy stuff called the chaff that you don't want to eat gets blown by the wind off of the threshing floor. Eventually it'll be gathered up and used for a bonfire. And the wheat is taken into the barn so you can make bread with it. That's what's being described here. Now, the picture here is one that is both very sobering and very exciting. Because John is saying, when the Christ comes... When the one comes who is greater than I am after me, Jesus, he's going to be like that farmer with a winnowing fork. And he's going to be throwing the world up in the air so that the light stuff gets blown away and the wheat gets burned or gathered into the barn. The white light stuff gets blown away and burned. The wheat is gathered into the barn. What John is saying is that as Jesus brings the kingdom of God to earth, he is coming with judgment and with grace. He's coming with judgment to overthrow all the powers of evil in the world. That's the consuming fire that's being talked about here. And he's coming with mercy and grace to forgive sinners and to heal and to restore. Now, can we be honest for a second that we like the grace part better than the judgment part? Show of hands. Do you like grace more than judgment? Okay, I see that hand. I see all those hands. I like grace more than judgment. But here's the reality of, of our situation. Deep in the heart of not only Christians, but I think every human being is an awareness that the world is not as it ought to be. Anybody look around at the world and watch the news and look into your own heart and think everything's just right? On the contrary, because we're created in the image of God, we're made with this yearning for a world of love and peace and righteousness. And we're hungry and thirsty for a better world. We live in a world of brokenness where there's much evil. And the reality is this. 
to have our deepest desires fulfilled requires that evil be defeated. Church, do you want evil to go on forever? Do you want the devil to keep messing with our kids? Racism, sexual immorality, greed, selfishness, child abuse. Anybody want that stuff to continue? What we're saying is we need Jesus to come judge evil. We need him to be victorious over evil. You see, wrath in a world like this is a necessary expression of the fact that God is love. Because God loves you and because God loves everything that he has created, God is committed to overcoming every destructive force that brings pain and misery to his creation and keeps us from flourishing for his glory. And the Bible word for that commitment to overcome that power of evil is the wrath of God. Now, we're saying we want God to overcome evil, but that deep instinct we have to like grace better than judgment is a good instinct because of what we talked about last week. When we're honest with ourselves, we all know that we're not just victims of the world's evil, we're participants in the world's evil. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is why it's very good that Jesus is coming not only with judgment, but with grace. Jesus is coming, in fact, to die on the cross for our sins, to take in himself all of our evil and all of its consequences so that we don't have to be punished. Isn't that good news? All of the worst things you've ever done and I've ever done, Jesus took it on himself on the cross. He died and he rose again. And he says anybody who trusts in him can be freely forgiven of their sins. Now, now that Jesus has come into the world, As we'll see as we keep reading through Luke's gospel, his very presence forces us to a point of decision. In Jesus, God has come among us in a new and fresh way. We either accept him as God, Savior, and Lord, or we reject him. To accept him as God, Savior, and Lord is to surrender to him in faith. Say, Jesus, you're my everything. I'm dying to my old way of life in order to be alive in you. To reject him is to participate with those voices that were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right when he said, when you're confronted with the God-man, Jesus Christ, your only options are to die or to crucify him. Either I die to myself and say, I trust in you to give me new life, or I say, I reject you, Jesus. But that rejection of Jesus means I'm holding on to the world's evil. And the import of John's message here is this. Jesus is coming in love and mercy and power to overcome evil and to set everything right by his great love. So don't hold on to that evil. If you hold on to that evil and sin, you'll be burned up with it. Instead, hear the gracious voice of Jesus Christ saying, let go and come to me and you will be forgiven by grace. Now, the presence of Jesus in the world begins this process, this winnowing process. But the scripture tells us that Jesus is coming back again, okay? He came once to die on the cross for our sins and rise again. He will return in glory to overcome the powers of evil and to usher his people into his heavenly kingdom, fulfilling finally what John has said in verse 17. And church, I want to pause for a second to ask us, do we have that same sense of lively expectation that was described in verse 15? 
Verse 15 says the people were filled with expectation. Why? Because they knew the promises of God and they had learned to live by hope in God's promises. This has been a theme of the Gospel of Luke. Elizabeth and Zechariah lived by hope in God's promises. Simeon and Anna lived by hope in God's promises. Now we're told there's a faithful remnant of people that as John is going out preaching, the presence of John is filling them with expectation. Maybe the Messiah is here. Maybe God's about to fulfill all of his promises. And I just want to ask us, church, do we have that same sense of lively expectation? Jesus is coming back. Because one of my prayers this week is that the Holy Spirit will make us a people of hope. Everybody say hope. I want you to imagine with me what, it, what it's going to be like. Jesus is really coming. It's really going to happen, friends. How do I know? I know because Jesus of Nazareth walked around teaching the Bible, healing the sick, casting out demons. And then he said, I'm going to die and rise again. And then he died and then he walked out of the tomb. So if he says, I'm coming back again, you can trust his word. Now, I want you to think about it. I want you to imagine it. It's the end of all evil. It's the end of all death. There, there's something here that rightly makes us tremble as we think of Jesus Christ judging evil. But friends, if you've trusted in Jesus, then the words of 1 John 4 apply to you. There is no fear in love because fear has to do with punishment. Christian, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, when he comes back, there is no condemnation for you. And anybody in here who has not trusted in Jesus, that's why we plead with you as we preach the gospel. We say today, turn from evil, put your faith in Jesus Christ, be baptized in his name, become his disciple, because then you'll be freed from evil and all of its consequences. To run away from Christ is to run to outer darkness, it's to run to consuming fire. But now I want you to think about what does it mean for all those sinners who have trusted in Jesus Christ? The second coming of Jesus means we will see Jesus faith. Face to face. It means we will live with Jesus in a resurrected cosmos, a new heavens and a new earth. Think about all the best, beautiful things about this creation now fulfilled and amplified times a billion. Aren't you eager to taste glorified enchiladas? I mean, the earthly enchiladas are delicious, right? But all of the great glory and beauty of this creation is fulfilled and perfected. Think about family reunions, your loved ones, parents, grandparents, uncles and aunts who have died in Christ running to see you saying it's going to be okay now and forever. Think about a resurrected body. Some of you in this room know much more than I do from your own experience about chronic sickness and chronic pain. Doesn't it feel exciting to imagine never experiencing that sickness and pain again? Even more, think about a glorified soul. Anybody tired of wrestling with the evil in your own heart? Anybody excited about living in a day where all of your impulses will be spontaneous faith, hope, and love? That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. All of our broken relationships will be healed. Aren't you glad for family drama to be a thing of the past? Doesn't that sound exciting? All of our broken friendships... When you turn on the news and even the church of Jesus Christ is a mess and you get discouraged, isn't it great to think when Jesus comes back, the church is going to be a pure and holy bride that reflects the glory of its Savior? But the best part, friends, is God himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. All of our traumas will be healed and we will gaze upon his face 
and enjoy him forever. What I'm trying to say and what John's trying to say, friends, is Jesus is coming back. And if we're awake to that fact, if we live by hope in that fact, that gives us a resilient peace and joy. And it energizes us now to live as people of love and righteousness who are doing good in the world because we know if you're on Team Jesus, all of your struggles are going to end in victory by His grace. Now, I want to have a hope like that. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit this morning will be awakening that kind of a living hope and expectation in our hearts. But I want to say to us, We can't just crank out that kind of hope. It's got to come from the Holy Spirit. And that leads us back to verse 16. Look again with me at verse 16. The title of my sermon is from verse 16, the Holy Spirit and fire. And finally, now we're going to give our attention to what John says here. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. That's what we learned about last week. As John was preaching, people were going down to the Jordan River and they'd go into the river and John would dunk them in the river. And they're going in confessing their sins and and getting dunked in the river is a symbolic act. I'm coming into the river dirty, guilty, ashamed of my own sin. And going into the river is a little scary. Going underwater feels kind of like drowning. It feels kind of like dying. But then they're dying and rising. They're coming out. Cleansed, fresh, new. It's symbolic of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But John says this. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, that's Jesus. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. He who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus is greater than John because of who he is, and because of what he can do for us. John is a prophet, but he's also a sinner like you and me that needs forgiveness. Jesus is the God-man. He is the eternal son of the Father who has become flesh and dwelt among us so that he's fully God and he's fully human being. He's the prototype of authentic humanity. He never has sinned. He's the perfect Savior. He's greater than John because of who he is, but he's also greater than... John, because of what he can do for us. John can't die on the cross for our sins because John has his own sins to deal with. Only Jesus could die on the cross for our sins and rise again. But also, John can only baptize in water. Jesus can baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. I want us to think about what that means, but step one is just to picture it, okay? Just picture it in your mind. John is... Down in the Jordan River, and everybody's coming down to him. They're going out to the wilderness, but then they're finding the river. And they're going into the water, the flowing water. They're going underwater, and they're coming out all dripping wet. And John's saying, what you see me doing with the muddy waters of the Jordan, the Messiah is going to do with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Which means, this is a visual image, friends. It means becoming a Christian is like this. You come to Jesus, you've heard the good news that he's the son of God who died for your sins and rose again. And you come to him confessing your sins and you say, forgive me, Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, your sins are forgiven, which is already great news, but he doesn't stop there. Then he takes you into a river, but the river's not flowing with muddy water. The river is flowing with the Holy Spirit. And he just plunges you in there. And the river's flowing with fire. And he plunges you in there. 
So now we've got to ask what that means. There's a flowing river. Jesus is going to plunge you into the Holy Spirit. Well, what's that? First of all, it's not a it. It's a who. Okay. The, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal life force and Christians are not Jedi. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God. Okay. In the last few weeks, we've talked about that word, the Trinity. Everybody say the Trinity. One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that more next week. But right now, I want you to understand that when we talk about being plunged into the Holy Spirit, what we're saying is that we're being plunged into the personal presence of God with us. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. The Spirit is God awakening our hearts to joy and liberating us from all the lies that have made us captive. The Holy Spirit is God personally present to heal the deep wounds of our hearts and to touch the dead parts of our souls so that they come alive. I want you to understand, friend, Moses can't do that. John the Baptist can't do that. John Mark Hart can't do that. There's only one person that can do that. Jesus can baptize you in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit touches the deep wounds that no therapist can get to and he heals them. And the Holy Spirit touches the dead parts of our soul that no medication can resuscitate, and he makes them come alive. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God with us, freeing us to become the human beings we were made to be, to know Jesus Christ. Now, what about fire? Fire can be, in Scripture, a symbol of judgment. That's what happens in verse 17. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think here there's a different meaning of the image of fire that's being alluded to. And throughout the scriptures, fire is talked about not only as a consuming fire of judgment, but as a refining fire of grace. Most of us have never had the experience of going into a mine, a coal mine or a silver mine or a gold mine or digging for precious metals but if you were to do that and we were to take our pickaxes down there and excavate and we found some silver or some gold or whatever it is and pulled it out it probably was not going to come out a big pure hunk it's going to come out a mixture of gold and some other stuff right and so then they would put it in a really hot fire a really hot furnace and it would burn up all the other stuff make the dross come to the surface they take it off so that when you take that hunk of ore out of the fire, now it's pure gold. Lots of scriptures talk about this. I just want to give you one. If you, if you want to, you can flick with me in your Bible back to Zechariah. It's the second to last book of your Old Testament. I'm going to read you one scripture from Zechariah chapter 13. Beginning in verse 7, there's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. As a matter of fact, Jesus is going to quote verse 7 and say, this is about me. It's about my death on the cross and my disciples being scattered after I'm struck. But then in verses 8 and 9, he talks about the fact that at his coming, many of the Jewish people, at least initially, are going to reject him and face judgment. But there is a faithful remnant that's going to cling to him and experience his salvation. And look at verse 9, how the salvation that the Messiah is going to bring is described. He says, and I will put this third into the fire. Now, if you go back and read the text... 
When he says this third, he's not talking about those who are being judged. He's talking about the faithful remnant that he's saving. Okay? He says, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Here the picture is when Messiah comes, God is going to take the faithful people who trust in him. And not only is he going to pour out the Holy Spirit into them, but he's going to plunge them into the fire of God's holy grace in a way that is going to get rid of all the broken, ugly stuff in them so that when he pulls them back, Out of that fire, what they're going to do is call on the name of the Lord in faith. And he's going to say, they're my people. And they're going to say, he is our God. In other words, it's a picture of spiritual transformation and renewal. Now, let me ask you a question. Friends, would you like to be the holiest and best version of ourself, of yourself? So are you ready to get plunged into the fire? The fire imagery is kind of like a scary imagery. I mean, even if it's a positive thing, it sounds hot, right? But the imagery here is imagery of a river flowing with the presence of the creator and redeemer God. A river flowing with holy grace that when you plunge into it, you're going to come out different. You're going to come out refined. And it's saying, John is saying... Jesus is greater than me, not only because he's the Lamb of God who's going to die on the cross for your sins and rise again, but because I come to you preaching the word, but I can't actually change your hearts. Jesus is going to plunge you into the presence of the Holy Spirit, into the refining fire that is God's holy love. And when he pulls you out, you're going to be renewed. You're going to have a new heart. You're going to be changed. Only the crucified and risen Son of God can do that. Now, sometimes Christians get hung up on arguing with one another and debating about when does the baptism of the Holy Spirit happen and what does all that mean. I'll just say briefly, my understanding of this text is it's referring to what happens first at Pentecost when Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit on the church and something that looks like tongues of fire comes down on them and God's anointing power is unleashed in their lives in a new way. And it refers, secondly, to the experience of every Christian at conversion. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we may not feel new the next day, but we are new. God has begun a work in us, and this is dramatic language, but just because God's doing something dramatic doesn't mean you can see it right away. Sometimes the work of the Holy Spirit is exciting and obvious and visible, and sometimes it's slow and initially imperceptible, but God is refining us from the inside out. When you trust in Jesus, he plunges you. I think this is something that happens at conversion. But listen, friends, Jesus can keep pouring out more of the Holy Spirit for the rest of our lives. And my heart this week was just thinking, Jesus, thank you for plunging me when I trusted in you. Would you do it again? Would you do it again? Anybody want God to do a new work in your life today? I was kind of half-hearted. Anybody really want God to do a new work in your life today? You want to experience the freedom and joy that God has called you to experience? Well, here's a promise. We've been talking about promises. I'm going to give you one. I I dare you to jot this reference down and memorize this verse and hide it in your heart and make this a promise you claim in your life. 
Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? He's saying, parents, you want to give good gifts to your kid despite the fact that you've got all kinds of sin inside of you. Your Heavenly Father is love and He is eager. He is eager to pour out the Holy Spirit on anybody who comes to Him in faith and asks them, which is why I quoted to you a few weeks ago J. Oswald Sanders, the great missionary leader, saying the really encouraging but also challenging statement, every Christian is exactly as filled with the Holy Spirit as he or she really wants to be. There is no limit to the Father's willingness to pour out the Holy Spirit in us. Now, as I think about this work of Jesus Christ, I was just reflecting this week on... All, all that the Bible says that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our life, all that God's refining fire of holy grace wants to do inside of us, all the ways it wants to make us free. And I started jotting down a few of them. I'm just going to, as I'm almost done here, I'm just going to read a few of these. And, and as I read these, I want to just encourage you where you are to pray. And if I'm reading something about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian and it resonates with your heart, would you just where you are say, Holy Spirit, come do it again in your heart. You don't have to say it out loud because then we'll be all unsynchronized and awkward, okay? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? When we are filled with the Spirit and when we are maximally surrendered to the Holy Spirit, what does it look like? It looks like a deep, abiding knowledge of God's fatherly love for you which gives you confidence and peace in all circumstances. So that no matter what you're going through, the Holy Spirit inside of you is teaching you to cry, Abba, Father, I know that you love me. Do you want to have that deep confidence? Okay, then just this one time, repeat after me. Say, do it again. It looks like a deep assurance of God's forgiveness, which frees you from guilt and shame. Don't you want to go around believing the gospel? That there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. People who are fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit are marked by a hunger for personal communion with God through Bible study, worship, and prayer. They're, they're looking for the next time they can go crack open God's Word. They're eager to read it for themselves. They're eager to hear sermons. They're eager to get together with other Christians to fellowship. They're eager to pour out their hearts to pray. If in my heart there is not a hunger for God and there's not a hunger for prayer, that doesn't mean God doesn't love me, but it means that the Holy Spirit wants to do a fresh work to make me alive today. What does it look like when a person's filled with and surrendered to the Holy Spirit? It looks like excitement to spend time alone with God and to spend time worshiping God in communion, in community with the body of Christ. Eager and excited. So if... My daily time to try and open my Bible and pray or my weekly disciplines to gather with the saints feels like a burden. It feels like drudgery. The prayer needs to be, Holy Spirit, fill me again. Jesus, plunge me again. What does it look like when the Holy Spirit is poured out and he's making us awake and we're surrendered to him? It means we have spiritual eyes that see the beauty of God's goodness and of holiness and see the ugliness of sin so that we're not thinking, I wish I could sin. We're thinking, how do I get as far away from that as possible? And, how, and we're excited about the ongoing transformation of our character because we want to be like Jesus as much as possible. 
What does it look like when the Holy Spirit dwells in us and we're surrendered to him? It looks like a deep, sincere love for the church that compels us into joyful service. It looks like a deep and sincere love for the lost that compels us to share the gospel regularly and with zeal. We're praying for people to come to know Christ and we're eager to sacrifice to make changes in our schedule to be able to get the gospel out to people that don't know Jesus. When the Holy Spirit has gotten a hold of us like he does in Acts chapter 2 and like he's, he's doing with that early church as they were plunged into the mystery of God's holy presence, what does it look like? It looks like a sincere passion for the great commission of Jesus that makes us eager to do the work of making disciples so that we're excited to get up a little earlier, stay up a little late in order to make time to get with that saint that needs a little encouragement and help from us. It looks like a deep, sincere love for the hurting and vulnerable that compels us into doing works of mercy and justice. So that when we see the brokenness of the world, we're saying, here am I, Lord, send me, help me to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to bring hope and healing to this hurting world. What does it look like when we're filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, to bring us back to the theme where we started, it looks like a continual vital expectation of the second coming of Jesus Christ, which has an energizing and purifying effect in our lives. Now, I didn't read you verses for all the other works of the Holy Spirit, but I'm going to read you one verse, one more verse before I finish, which is connecting the dots between two themes in our text. Everybody say the Holy Spirit. Everybody say expectation. Expectation is talking about hope. Now, I want you to hear this word. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's my prayer. Holy Spirit, do a work in us that we will think much about the second coming of Jesus. We'll be excited about it. We'll be imagining it. And that confidence that Jesus is going to make all things right will energize us and transform us. Friends, as we get ready to wrap up this service, we're going to sing a song. And just by the way, I'd already written this sermon and I didn't know until just a minute ago that I think the song that they're about to come lead us again is called Do It Again. Is that right? That's like the perfect song, guys. It's a song that thinks about God's past faithfulness and then thinks about his promises and says, do it again. Jesus, plunge us again. Jesus, plunge us again. And as we sing that song, I pray that that's going to be the outcry of our heart. Jesus, only you can forgive our sins and only you can touch the dead parts of us to make us alive. Only you can touch the deep wounds of our hearts to heal us. But right now, before we go to the song, I just want to take a second to pray. And uh, actually, Kent, would you come up and strum for just a second? I know you're trying to pray, but you can pray while you strum, brother. God has given you that gift. And I want to just take a second to give you a moment to pray. Jesus wants to not only forgive your sins, but to plunge you into the flowing river of the Holy Spirit so that the deep parts of your heart are healed. I just want to ask you to do one of two things. Either where you are, would you just take a second to be honest with Jesus? What are the dead parts of you that need to be touched and come alive? What are the deep wounds that need to be healed? And just talk to him about it and ask him. And listen, here's a promise from God. He will pour out the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying anything crazy is going to happen right now, but he's going to do a deep work in your life. But also, sometimes the Holy Spirit asks us to pray with one another. So 
I'm not doing an altar call right now, but as Kent strums for a minute, if God is touching your heart to talk to somebody, I just encourage you to talk to the person that he puts on your heart and just go say, hey, here's a dead part of me that needs a touch from the Holy Spirit. Here's a deep wound that needs the healing grace of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a few minutes to pray on your own or to pray with one another. And then I'm going to say a prayer for you before we stand and sing. As you continue to pray, I just feel like the Lord put on my heart to say, as, we're, as you're thinking about that list of what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit, there's a difference between the condemning work of Satan and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. So Satan comes and says, look, you're spiritually weak. You're, look, you're spiritually struggling. God doesn't love you. You're bad. You're probably not even saved. What the Holy Spirit does, sometimes he allows us to see our weakness and struggle, but he says, but I love you and you are a child of God. There's no shame here. There's grace here. And if you'll come to me with your brokenness, I will meet you at that place of pain. So in the name of Jesus, there is no shame in this place. Amen. You're forgiven. And as you cry out to him, he loves to touch us in our places of vulnerability and weakness. So, Father, we come to you now thanking you for this text of scripture, thanking you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you that there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Thanking you that there's no shame here because Jesus bore our shame on the cross and took it all. There's none left. We thank you that Jesus rose victoriously from the grave and that there, there is plenty of Holy Spirit available to us. And Lord, I just pray for my sisters and brothers, what they've already been praying for themselves and for one another. Would you touch every broken part in us with your grace? Would you touch all of our wounds with healing love from your Holy Spirit right now? Would you do a ministry that's deeper than any words we could speak right now? Would you touch any dead parts of us and make them alive right now? Would you bring revival? We don't want to be a half-awake church or a half-alive church, Lord. We want to be all the way awake. We want to be all the way alive, Lord. So even as we sing at this moment, Lord God, would your Holy Spirit come where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. Come and bring that freedom now. In Jesus' name.